Hi everyone, um, like Fletcher said, we're reading from Psalm 108. I'll just wait a few more seconds. A song, a psalm of David. My heart, O God, is steadfast. I will sing and make music with all my soul. Awake, harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. I will praise you, Lord, among the nations. I will sing of you among the peoples. For great is your love, higher than the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Save us and help us with your right hand. For those you love may be delivered, that those you love may be delivered. God has spoken from his sanctuary. In triumph, I will parcel out Shechem and measure off the valley of Sukkoth. Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. Ephraim is my helmet. Judah is my scepter. Moab is my wash basin. On Edom, I toss my sandal. Over Philistia, I shout in triumph. Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? Is it not you, God, you who have rejected us and no longer go out with our armies? Give us aid against the enemy, for human help is worthless. With God, we will gain the victory and he will trample down our enemies. Thank you, Sarah. Please do keep your Bibles open at Psalm 108. I'm uh, just going to check I've got the power here to do stuff. Chow, I do. That's beautiful. Uh, before I uh, start, I expect maybe at best 5% response rate, but just to satisfy my curiosity, sing the next line if you know it. Through our God we shall do valiantly. He who will tread down... Okay, less than 5%. <laughs> you know how I said I was going to do an old school gem next week? I think this might be it. Actually, I was going to do something on a piece of architecture, but th this might be more important. There's a really, really awesome song that's actually based on this psalm. And for my curiosity, now satisfied, uh, I've learned that I need to, uh, to educate my congregation. Anyway, that's completely beside the point. Let me lead us in prayer and we'll get stuck into Psalm 108 together. Uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that you speak to us powerfully by your word and by the power of your spirit at work within and among us. We pray that you would do so now. Uh, help us to concentrate, set aside hindrances and distractions that we will tremble at and delight in your word and be built up uh, by it to become more like our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. If you hang around Christian circles for long enough, and it might not even take that long, you may come across the term, written or said, Maranatha. Uh, I expect Maranatha is one of those words that some Christians go, duh, yeah, Maranatha, you're going to say that all the time, right? Uh, 
And other Christians are like, I have no idea what that word is and what you're talking about. I like this guitar YouTube channel where this guy runs this thing called Too Afraid to Ask. It's stuff that all guitarists should know. Like, why is a 50-watt amplifier good? What does 50 watts mean? And he just explains it, right? So uh, the same thing could often happen with Christian lingo and Christian terminology. Some people are totally in on it. Some people are like, what are you talking about? All right, the people that do know what I'm talking about, Maranatha, does anyone know what it means? Anyone heard it before? Yep, who's definitely not heard it before and doesn't know what it means? Good, hands down, I'm going to put you out of your misery. It's an Aramaic term that literally means, Oh Lord, come. And now you know that when you see it, you go, Oh, they're, say, they're expressing, they're saying, Lord, come. Jesus, we want you to return. Maranatha. It's a, way of, it's a fancy way of saying, Come, Lord Jesus. And uh, for Christians, Maranatha is the right thing to pray and we're free to pray it as, we're, as we see fit. If you're like me, there might be times when uh, uh, things really suck, or at least you per- perceive things to really suck, and uh, you think, come on, if only Jesus would return. I remember many, many years ago, I was dating this girl long before Stacy, and um, uh, she decided that uh, she liked another guy better than me, and she decided to hook up with said guy, what do you know, on New Year's Eve, oh, Every New Year's Eve has been soured slightly because of that, that experience. And I remember afterwards the horrible gut turmoil that I felt. I was like, surely, Jesus, you should return, man. This is big enough, you know. Come on, like, this needs to be over. Put me out of my misery, right? But, of course, there are actual serious or far more serious examples uh, where Christians are right to pray Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus. You might uh, hear of world tragedies, of wars, of uh, natural disasters... Uh, terrible sicknesses, like uh, um, uh, terminal illnesses, uh, debilitating anxiety over great suffering and difficulty. Uh, Christians en masse and Christians individually will often pray Maranatha. There's actually a good chance that some people in this room uh, throughout the next 365 days uh, will find themselves very seriously praying, please Jesus return because what I'm going through is, is really horrible. That it is right and sensible for Christians to pray Maranatha is something I assume most, if not all of us, are on board with. If you're not on board with that, come and speak to me afterwards. I'll tell you why it's the right thing for Christians to pray. We want Jesus to return. We gladly say, come Lord Jesus. But our good and loving Heavenly Father occasionally sees fit in His Word to remind us of the rightness of the importance of and the specific reasons for praying, come Lord Jesus, Maranatha. And Psalm 108 is one such occasion. Uh, You see in the title, which in uh, some Bibles it'll be called verse zero, that's a bit strange because they didn't originally verse the titles, which is silly because they're part of the Bible. In verse zero, the title of the psalm is, well, it's a psalm, a song of King David. And it is a psalm of David regarding its contents, but not regarding its shape. Psalm of David regarding its content, but not regarding its shape. What on earth do I mean by that? I'll explain. Psalm 108 is all written by David. It's all the words of the great King David, the ancient king in Israel. But it's a combination of two parts of two earlier Psalms of David that a compiler has taken and put together. Both parts emphasize that Yahweh, that is the Lord God, Yahweh, 
is the God who we should expect to bring salvation in the sense of doing something drastic and cleaning up the mess. But he, we should expect him to do that for two different reasons, one from each of the borrowed Psalms. We should expect Yahweh, the Lord, to bring salvation on account of who he is, his character. And secondly, we should also expect Yahweh to bring about salvation because of what he has spoken, because of his word. And there are some very convincing reasons to assume that the compiler has put these two parts of, of David's Psalms together centuries after King David wrote them to assure the people of Israel of God's goodness to them during the time of their captivity in the exile in Babylon. It's kind of as if the compiler has put these words of David together to say, even though you Israelites, you, you, you tribes of Judah who are far away from the dwelling place of God because you're stuck as captives in Babylon, it still remains true that because of who God is and because of what God has said, that you should totally expect him to show up, to release you from captivity and to bring you back into his presence in the promised land. Basically, guys, things suck, but you're right to expect God to personally do something serious about it. But that's my summary. Don't take it from me. Let's go through the text together, both halves, and uh, then after that, see how it is that in Christ, this same psalm encourages you and I to live in light of God's imminent return and final salvation. Or at point one in your outline, if you happen to be a note taker, David begins his psalm by saying, my heart, O God, is steadfast. In other words, I'm really determined to do something. My heart is steadfast. What's he going to do? I will sing and make music with all my soul. Awake, harp and lyre, I will awaken the dawn. David's pretty much saying, God, I'm really looking forward to praising you with music and instruments. Normally, the dawn wakes me up. David lived just a little bit before there were alarm clocks, you see, and so the thing that woke him up was the sun coming up, like everybody else. But he's so eager, and he's got this cool expression that he goes, no, 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 the dawn ain't going to wake me up. I'm already ready. I'm going to wake the dawn up. It's like I'm raring to do this praising of God with my instruments. And uh, we're thankful that his instruments is the harp and lyre as opposed to the bagpipes and the drum kit, because that wouldn't be very good to wake up the dawn with. Anyway, what David's eager for, though, is not the regular musical praise of God that the, the people of God would have been used to. They would have been used to singing about God to one another, which is what praise is. This is something bigger. This is something different. Verse 3, I will praise you, Lord, not just in the assembly or not just in your temple, which you might expect. No, no, I will praise you, Lord, it says, among the nations. I will sing of you among the peoples, the non-Israelites, the Gentiles, the rest of the world. For what reason should David's God be advertised to the people of, of all the nations? Well, unlike all the false gods who serve their own interests and change their minds from one day to the next, Yahweh, the true Lord, the true God of heaven and earth, is the God who is steadfast in his love and in his faithfulness. That's the reason that David wants to praise Yahweh to the nations. So verse 4, for, here's why I'm going to do it, for because great is your love, higher than the heavens, your faithfulness reaches 
to the skies. Um, uh, just a little bit of um, theological nerdism. You'll often find as you read through the Old Testament, in particular Psalms, but also elsewhere, that, that you find these two words together, love and faithfulness, love and faithfulness, love and faithfulness. Uh, Jews like doing things in pairs for some reason, right? The, the, the fancy word for it is a henditis, two things that fit together. And uh, if for some reason you joined our morning congregation at Harrington Park in their weekend away, we had this guy, Lionel Windsor, who's a mega nerd, and he told us the Hebrew words for love and faithfulness. I know there's a couple of people here that were there who remember them. Uh, does anyone remember? Yeah, you, you yell it out. Yeah, chesed and emet. Now, I'm pretty sure the reason he did that is just to give you, well, yeah, but it's to give you a sense of, oh, these are important because they go together, right? God's love and God's faithfulness. Now that you know that, when you read through Psalms, you just see it everywhere. You'll be like, oh, yeah, they're those funny Hebrew things that go together. But the idea is God is really loving and really faithful. That's the thing about Yahweh, and that's the reason David wants to praise him. But, sadly... The reason the psalmist can't yet wake up the dawn and praise Yahweh among the nations is because God has not yet made it obvious that he is faithful and loving for the sake of those nations. He hasn't yet fixed up the mess that his own people are in. And so verse 5, the psalm becomes a petition, a, a please do this, God. So verse 5 Look at the words. He says, be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory cover all the earth. Save us, help us with your right hand that those you love may be delivered. Basically, God, act in accordance with your love and faithfulness. Do something to get us out of this mess so that the world will see who you really are. I wouldn't be surprised uh, if you have or one day will at some point feel a little bit like the psalmist feels. Because you choose to live in obedience to Christ, you make decisions that your non-Christian friends and family think are stupid. You might even be ridiculed from time to time. Perhaps the way you respond Christianly to hardship or suffering means that the world looks on you like you've lost the plot, there's something wrong with you. And so you might get to the point, and Christians often do, where they want to scream out, God, do something to make them see. I'm not a moron, this is right, do something. And it is actually wonderful that in his word, our loving Heavenly Father gives us words with which we're encouraged to express such frustration. So much so that, as I said before, we get the same point a second time, though now from a different angle in Psalm 108. Uh, point two on your outline, the compiler now adds in words of David that show us that we should expect God to act not only because of who he is, but also because of what he has said. So verse seven, oh, there we go. God has spoken from his sanctuary. What does he say? He says, in triumph, I'll parcel out Shechem and measure off the valley of Sukkot. Gilead is mine, Manasseh is mine, Ephraim is my helmet, Judah is my scepter, Moab my washbasin, on Edom I toss my sandal. Over Philistia I shout in triumph, who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? In other words, God's basically saying, 
Get this, guys, I'm a great warrior. The cities of the promised land, the cities like Ephraim and Manasseh, they're the ones I look after. They're the ones I'm part of. They're like my helmet and my, my scepter, right? They're my people. The cities that are the enemies of my people, like Moab, the Moabites or the Edomites, they're the ones I chuck my shoes on. Or they're the ones I spit in, like the wash basin, right? They're not going to get any good. They're going to get measured out from me. They're going to be conquered by me. And as a matter of fact, God says, I'm so raring to go. Just point me in the right direction. Show me the wall and I'll smash it down, right? That's what those last verses are there. Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? You see, just like David, he's really itching to praise God to all the nations. He, he wants to wake up the dawn. Well, so God himself is really itching to do the kind of thing that David would praise him for. And that all leads us to a very burning and very obvious question. David wants God to save. And God wants God to save. So why on earth isn't it happening yet? And it's with that tension we come to the penultimate, the almost ultimate, but the penultimate part of the song where this great tension gets expressed. It's verse 11, Oop, which I didn't put in, did I? Oh, that was really dumb of me. Verse 11 in your Bibles, which says, Is it not you, God, who have rejected us and no longer go out with our armies? Give us aid against the enemy, for human help is worthless. In other words, God, this is all on you. We can't fix the mess. We can't save ourselves. Human help's worthless. We want you to act. And apparently, in accordance with your character and word, you want you to act. So why are we still rejected? If I was tasked with writing music for this song, I'd have to use really dissonant chords or really suspenseful chords at this point. The big emotion here, the big drive of this psalm is frustration. And to a lesser extent, probably some combination of sadness and anger. Now, just for a little minute, I'm going to risk getting too big for my boots by becoming a prophet. <laughs> prophet Ben is in the house. Please note, I'm very much tongue-in-cheek here. Don't, if this is being recorded, yeah, yeah, don't quote me on this. But as my, my current foray into uh, being a prophet, I predict that this kind of frustration that David's expressing here will happen for many of us in this room at some point in our Christian lives. Most of us, possibly all of us, unless you die young, most of us will endure significant suffering and hardship at some point in our lives. Some of our number, either here or in our uh, other congregations, are in the thick of horrible suffering right now. God's character makes it obvious that he wants to clean up the mess. God's word makes it obvious that he wants to clean up the mess. We either have or will find ourselves wanting God to clean up the mess. And so we suffer with the dreadful frustration that he's not doing something about it. But 
And this is a very big but. If you've drifted off, come back in. This is a big but. The same logic that frustrates the psalm writer also at one and the same time has a second and equally obvious outcome. You see, because God is supremely loving, because he is faithful, and because God's word therefore must always be true, it has to be the case. It not might be the case, it has to be the case that God will sooner or later act to save his people. Hence the final verse, the ultimate conclusion, which is actually the main point of this psalm, the final uh, verse that the frustration has led up to is verse 13. With God, we will gain the victory and he will trample down our enemies. That must be the only logical possible conclusion. It is the conclusion that is forced by the premises, if you like logic. There will be salvation, there will be vindication, there will be a tremendous satisfaction for those who God loves. And if the Israelites, during their time in exile, can know that, like this compiler who cleverly put the psalm together, and if they can know that on the basis of God's character and God's word, then you and I, the church, we're on even more sure footing because we know that God has already begun the process of doing his cosmic cleanup. And he's doing that, of course, through the personal work of the greatest king in the line of David, namely Jesus. In our case, the end has actually already begun. The New Testament makes it abundantly clear that in Jesus we have the fullest and final expression of the character of God. We're told, Colossians 1, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. All that God is in terms of his character, that's what we see in Jesus. And in Jesus also we have the fullest and most final revelation of God's word. For Jesus himself is the word who became flesh, John 1, which of course we celebrated, what, one week ago, right? Coming into the world. The one big thing, the one big ticket item that stands behind every single bit of mess in this universe is, of course, sin. And I'm not sorry, but I am sad to say that that includes your sin and mine. All of us personally have contributed to the very mess that sooner or later we're really going to beg God to come and fix up. By his willing sacrifice, Yahweh, the Lord, in the person of his son Jesus, has disarmed that great enemy. He has conquered the sting of death. He has conquered the power of the devil and of sin. And the only reason he is holding off giving that final victory to his people is that his steadfast love and faithfulness mean that he's allowing more time for people from all nations to become his worshippers. Hence, you and I are right to join David in wanting to awake the dawn and sing the praises of Yahweh so that all the nations will hear and hopefully come to know him before it's too late, in order that they can join us in suffering, join us as the people who will cry out Maranatha in the sure hope of future glory. Perhaps one of the most important reasons we pray, come Lord Jesus is because we know that the day will come when that prayer will most certainly be answered in the affirmative. So there are all sorts of things that we as followers of the Lord Jesus pray. 
Some will be answered in the affirmative, some won't and some we won't know. But this one, Maranatha, definitely will be answered as a yes. I don't know when that day is. It could still be before 2024. Still a few hours left. Could be throughout 2024, could be in a thousand years from now. But it will be answered. By way of implication then, I dare not assume that I know the heart and soul of everyone in the room and uh, I am uh, obligated as a teacher of the Word of God uh, to make it clear that there's one and only one way to be ready for the return of the Lord Jesus. I'm going to assume everyone knows this, but I'm not going to act on that assumption. You need to turn and make Jesus the Lord of your life rather than yourself. It's called becoming a Christian. It's called repentance and faith. It says, you know, Jesus did actually die a real death and endured the real wrath of God so that the punishment I deserve for my sin might be turned aside. And Jesus actually was really raised bodily to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that he really is the king, the ruler that God has put in charge. God says to everyone and anyone, I don't want you to be the boss of your life. I've made it very obvious that Jesus is to be the boss of your life. Uh, you need to accept reality, which means going, you know what, Jesus? Yeah, I'm going to make you the boss. I'm going to live for you, not for me. I know the day is going to come when you'll return, you'll be vindicated. All those who know him as Lord and Saviour, those who are forgiven for their sins, enjoy uh, a blissful eternity in heaven with him in his presence forever. Those who remain stubborn and rebellious in their rejection of him are those who will not enjoy an eternity in his blissful presence forever. The way to get ready for the, the answered prayer of Maranatha is to turn and put your faith in Christ, is to become a Christian. If you've not yet done that, for goodness sake, do it this year. Second, there's this wonderful expression used by the Apostle Peter in uh, one of his uh, letters, the second letter, uh, which I've always found fascinating. It's, it's that as Christians we are to, quote, speed the coming of the Lord. Speed the coming of the return of Jesus. It's a fancy way of saying, given that we know exactly what the future holds we know that all things will be united under the lordship of jesus and all wrongs will be punished we know that all those who have put their trust in him uh, will, will receive final salvation given that we know that well unless you're a complete dodo the obvious way to live is only ever always in light of that reality how do you live in light of the fact that god will be proven holy and faithful how do you live in light of the fact that god will be shown to have won the victory it's called living a holy life that's what it is to speed the coming is to live a holy life again don't take it from me take it from much better wording because it's from the bible itself 2 peter 3 verse 10 but the day of the lord will come like a thief the heavens will disappear with a roar the elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? Well, you ought to live holy and godly lives. As you look forward to the day of God, and, and here's the expression, speed its coming. Brothers and sisters, my charge to you is not really mine, it's from God, it's from the Word, is to 
live holy and godly lives in light of the fact that he's going to return. I want you all to speed the coming. Now, there are Christians in the world who believe that if the church is suddenly really good and really holy, that the date of Jesus' return is going to be sooner, like literally sooner. I don't think that's what this is about, right? I mean, it might be. I'm not going to die on that hill, right? Whatever. Uh, Someone asked this morning, do you think Jesus knows when he's going to return? And yes, I do. Uh, I think he didn't during his earthly ministry, but I think he does now. But don't get caught up on that. We'll have a big debate about that afterwards. But uh, what is obvious and clear is that we live in light of that end. How do you kind of plan to live in light of what you're doing next year i don't know i'm starting uni next year i'm getting a new job this year so i need a car and so you just kind of work backwards well god's going to be vindicated in the return of the lord jesus what are you going to do between now and then to ensure that you speed the coming that you live a holy life did i mention that growth groups are going to come in 2024 there's the lowest hanging fruit right For goodness sake, make sure you're regularly committed to being a part of a growth group. Apart from being at church every Sunday, be at a growth group once a week. Uh, I'm going to put some cards on the table. Pastors uh, are a little bit nervous about telling you this, (laughs) but I'm not. Um, If you're going to leave a fellowship, if you're going to leave a church, statistically, it is more likely that you are not part of a growth group. So if you're not part of a growth group for a long time, more likely that you'll leave the church. Now, there's people that are in growth groups that leave church, people that are not in growth groups that don't leave the church, right? But statistically, it's a high likelihood. Less chance of uh, being connected in a meaningful way under the Word of God where we help one another pursue holiness. So think about, very seriously, joining a growth group in 2024. Uh, I'd say the same thing for the children and young people of our churches, although I don't see very many children here, but I will say it just in case. Parents primary, uh, are the primary disciples of children, but as a church, we partner with them by running wonderful kids programs. We have on Friday afternoon a thing called Thrive Kids Club. And I send my kids to that because after they do that, they'll then go to Grace Youth every week. And after they go to Grace Youth every week, their whole lives will have been shaped by having this midweek fellowship under the Word of God and sort of uh, joining with peers. And so it'll be very easy for them to think, well, what do I do next? I go to a growth group. That's what I do. Uh, yeah, it, it befuddles the mind that there are some people who think, oh, no, I won't include my kids in any of the programs at our church or something. It's, it's whacked. We will, and I think this is printed on your bulletin, have a night church weekend away this year. And is it on the bulletin? Yeah, good. And the dates are there. And I even put in the newsletter this week, Kezi has done wonderful work putting all the dates for the year in our church calendar. Put them in your thing now. Make it a priority. I'm not going to go on holidays then because that's when my church is having a whole weekend time together sitting under the Word of God. I'm going to make that a priority. You can do that right now. Put the date in your item. You see, brothers and sisters, it is right to cry out, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. But it makes so much more sense when those who are crying out are those who clearly have their lives shaped by the very real expectation that it will one day happen soon. I hope that makes sense. Let me conclude in prayer. Might have questions. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for your Son, our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by his death has taken away the penalty of sin 
by his resurrection, uh, has shown himself to be Lord and uh, gives his people new life. Father, we thank you that you give us words to express the very real frustration that as followers of Jesus, we can and do undergo this side of heaven. Heavenly Father, we pray uh, that you would uh, send Jesus to return soon uh, so that we uh, and our brothers and sisters all over the world uh, would never have any kind of suffering again. And yet, Father, we thank and praise you that in in your amazing love and faithfulness, you hold off for the sake of more people having time to repent. And I pray, Father, for anyone here tonight who as yet does not recognise Jesus Christ as their Lord and Saviour, that you would work powerfully in them by your Spirit and turn them uh, to a saving knowledge of Jesus, that they would stand firm both now and on the last day. Heavenly Father, help all of us to prioritise growth in holiness throughout the year 2024 AD. Uh, particularly with low-hanging things like regular church and growth group. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.